Let's just say together the prayer that the Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you that this word is the word of your grace. And that it's also the word of your power. So grant us now, Lord, that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might truly know you better. And Lord God, as we continue to study together your omniscience, your all-knowing nature and attribute, we pray that you might change our hearts and make us more like Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. So last week we began to look at the all-knowing God, the omniscient God, he who knows all things. And we began by looking at the things that he has made, things in heaven, and the earth itself, and that which is on the earth or in the earth. We chose representative examples of those three groups, otherwise we would have been here for about the next two years. And today we're going to look at his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, when it comes to time. As God says in Isaiah 46 that we just read together, he knows the end from the beginning. And he formed you at your birth and will be with you at your grey hairs. He even knows, he doesn't count, he knows the number of grey hairs or otherwise that we have on our heads. I'm getting to the stage where there's more grey hairs than whatever colour I had prior to that, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. He knows all things. And today we're going to start to look at the question of time, how it is that he knows the end from the beginning. But before we leave the things that he has made altogether, I just want to draw your attention and our attention to a wonderful little verse in Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. That's telling us something powerful and profound about these works of the Lord, these things that God has made, and his invitation to humanity to do two things with or about those things that he has made. To delight in them and to study them. It's a glorious thing when you see a human being fully alive it's a glorious thing when you see someone and you just think to yourself that person is moving in the giftings that God has given her or him David I saw that wonderful wonderful video from the February the 11th this week at Compium the math the mission aviation fellowship video the fellow that had you know crushed tre- not crushed tree the leg the tree that had crushed his leg 
And his friends brought him overnight and for three days and there just happened to be a plane available and what a wonderful, wonderful thing it was. But you were able to do what you were able to do because you've taken the time to delight in the things of God and to study those things to equip you with the gifting and calling that God has given our brother David. And that is true for every single one of us in this place. He desires us to study and to take delight in as we give glory to him. For the things of God that he's placed so abundantly and so freely and so prolifically upon this earth. But let's turn our attention to time. As we do that, let's see if we can remember those of us that were here last week, what our kind of watchword statement is for this series, this mini-series, which is now going to go to a third sermon, I might add, on the omniscience of God. Let's see if we can remember this. There isn't anything the Lord doesn't know everything. Wonderful. You got it. Thank you so much. You led me. Today we're going to look at one of the greatest human figures in the whole of history. And we're going to look specifically at what God had to say about one of these greatest human figures throughout all of history, a hundred years before he was born, and a hundred and fifty years before he ascended to be head and ultimately king of the Achaemenid, which became the Persian Empire. His name was Cyrus the Great. There are two meanings for the word Cyrus when it's translated out of the Persian. It means son, as in S-U-N. And it also means he who bestows care. Isn't that a beautiful meaning for a name? He who bestows care. No wonder that when the prophecy about Cyrus begins in Isaiah 42, And it goes all the way to the end of Isaiah 48, I might add. Seven chapters of detailed prophecy about the life and work of son, he who bestows care. God opens that by calling him his servant. And he frequently refers to him as his shepherd. Through those seven detailed passages of breathtaking prophecy. Because, you see, as we look at the omniscience of God when it pertains to time, we need to remind ourselves that this book is primarily history, in other words, that which has happened, or prophecy, which is future history, that which will happen. And the amazing thing about these seven chapters of prophecy about Cyrus the Great is that even liberal, non-Bible-believing scholars recognize the level of detail in these seven chapters is so profound that it can't be God that spoke these words. So we have to find another explanation as to how it could be so detailed and so accurate. And the theory that many people have come up with, and sadly the theory that is taught in some Bible colleges and certainly theological colleges today, is that there was more than one Isaiah That one Isaiah lived when he said he lived in the 8th century BC, beginning his ministry in 740 BC. And then another fellow came along later, 
Several hundred years later, it had to be, because otherwise nobody could predict the level of detail that's in Isaiah 42 to 48 and wrote the rest. Beloved, that cannot be true. And if you just turn with me, because this isn't a digression, this is part of the omniscience of God today. Let's turn to John's Gospel. And let's read three verses of John's Gospel, actually four. John chapter 12. And this is one of several examples in the New Testament where we clearly see that the Holy Spirit, either through Jesus himself or through the narrator, as in this case, John, the Apostle, shows us that there was only one Isaiah. So reading from John chapter 12, verse, let's start with verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, you see that phrase? Clearly identifies the speaker, might be fulfilled. And then there's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. The second half of the book of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, says John. For again, who said? Isaiah said. And this time... The quote comes from Isaiah chapter 6, which is right at the beginning. So modern liberal scholars tell us there was at least two Isaiahs, because there has to be, because how could anybody predict in the future what happens in and what's prophesied in Isaiah 42 to 48? But the Holy Spirit is clearly telling us here there's only one Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, just in case we haven't got it, said these things, both in Isaiah 53, verse 1, and in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So there we are. One Isaiah, through whom God spoke, including these amazing seven chapters pertaining to the life of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus, as far as we know, was born in 600 BC, there or thereabouts. That's exactly a hundred years, there or thereabouts, since Manasseh, the most evil king that Judah ever had and the longest reigning king that Judah ever had, had had the prophet Isaiah sawn in two. Some versions, historians tell us that he was tied between two horses and that the, both of the horses ran off at breakneck speeds uh, in opposite directions and he was ripped apart. Others tell us that Manasseh just had him sawn in two, down the middle. Well, not down the middle, across the middle. 55 years of a ruler like that. God was really exposing the sin that was in that nation. A nation often gets the ruler that they deserve. May we continue to pray for Scott Morrison and his government and for our own premier. So... Cyrus, is, his life is shaded in obscurity until he becomes king, emperor of the Achaemenid dynasty in, six, in 550 BC. The subsequent Medo-Persian empire became the greatest empire that the world had ever seen until Alexander the Great succeeded. The empire went from modern-day Danube, southern Hungary, 
encompassing Bulgaria and Crete, all the way down to the borders of Egypt, right across to the Indus River, modern-day borders of India and Pakistan, right up to the southern republics of Russia, Tatarstan, Kazakhstan, and so on and so forth. It was a massive, massive empire. And from 550, when he ascended to the throne, Cyrus the Great, for reasons which he didn't fully understand himself, but which God did, because God had spoken them a hundred and so years previous, had his eye on Babylon. The city of Babylon, the greatest city that the world had ever seen in human terms, been going since 2300 BC. Its walls by the time of Cyrus the Great were 311 feet high, which I think is about 97 meters high. The tops of the walls were so wide, 87 feet, which is about 26, 27 meters. You could drive a chariot around the tops of the walls. Over 100 gates keeping this city safe and secure. The historian Xenophon and his counterpart, I uh, can't remember his name, Herodotus, tell us that Babylon as a city was 195 miles square. It was a massive, massive city. Impregnable. But Cyrus the Great, for reasons he didn't fully understand, began to march. And he had his eye on Babylon all along. And in 540 BC, he decided he would march his troops, including his great general Gobirus, who was to become Darius the Mede, or Darius the First of the Medo-Persian Empire, towards Babylon. They were waylaid. They were waylaid, and a tributary of the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. The river today is known as the Diyala. And this river was wide and it was fast flowing because it was springtime and all the water was coming down off the mountains and it was blocking their way. And a sacred horse, a white stallion, who was a very spirited animal, decided it was going to ford this river and plunged into the Diala and was promptly swept away and drowned. And Cyrus, in 540 BC, was so furious with this river that he decided he was going to teach it a lesson. So he stopped all of his troops on either side of the Tigris. Some of them had found bridges and managed to get across. Not, not the Tigris, the Diala, which was a tributary of the Tigris. And he ordered them to begin digging canals and channels. And Herodotus, who Cicero said was the father of history, tells us that there were 180 channels, canals on either side of this Diala River. And sure enough... The floor was just dissipated, and Cyrus had taught the Jolly River a jolly lesson. But he'd lost the whole of the summer season, because it takes a long time to dig 180 channels on either side of a great river like the Diala in the spring. And he thought, well, not to worry. We'll take Babylon next year, which just so happened to be 70 years after the first of the Jews from Jerusalem had been exiled in Babylon. So the following spring, the army of Cyrus the Great marches on Babylon. They defeat the Babylonian army in the open field and then turn their attention to the city itself. 
97 metre high walls, 27 metre thick in certain places, a hundred gates made of brass and iron. If you look at our prophecy carefully today, as we'll do in a moment, you will see that God even prophesied what the Babylonian gates were going to be made of. That's the level of detail that the omniscient God tells his people when he wants to get their attention. So, the king of Babylon, whose name was Nabonidus, was conveniently away from the city in 539 BC. He was often away from the city because he was an archaeologist. He was more interested in archaeology than he was in being a king, at least an active one. Isn't that amazing? 539 BC, and people are already into archaeology. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So he'd left his core regent, Belshazzar, of Daniel 5 fame, though he didn't last long in Daniel 5 because he didn't last long full stop, many, many Tekel Perez in the city. And the Babylonians are in the city thinking, yep, we know the army of Cyrus the Great is outside, but there's 195 square miles to this city. These walls are impregnable. Nothing's going to happen to us. We've got cattle and food and crops stored up for several years of a siege. They'll leave us alone eventually. Nobody's ever taken the city of Babylon. So let's now read together from the last few verses of Isaiah 44 and the early verses of Isaiah 45. We're dotting around because seven chapters, the book of Ezra notwithstanding, where they stood all day and listened to the first five books of the Bible, is a long uh, passage, isn't it, to hear on a Sunday morning. So let's see, we will start with verse 24 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Remember the Diala River that we talked about just now. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, second time that he's named, notice, a hundred years before he's even born. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Now, before we go any further, if you read Daniel 5, chapter 6, the relatively short reign of co-regent Belshazzar, it actually tells you, it uses those words that his loins were loosed. Hello, Scott. In the King James Version. Because a ruler always had his loins girded. It was a symbol of his power when they were belted and firm and strong. But Belshazzar that night had already loosened his own loins. 
because he was partying with the goblets that had been taken from the Jerusalem temple by Nebuchadnezzar, who at least had the nounce to respect the God of Israel. But when those words appeared in Daniel 5, on the walls of wherever he was partying, his loins were loosed fully, just as this prophecy had said they would be. To open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Notice that little phrase, we'll come back to it in a moment. I will go before you and level the exalted places. You can't get much more exalted than 311 feet high. Some of the towers in the palace in Babylon were 420 feet high, which is something like 110 metres. I will break in pieces the doors of brass, if you've got the King's James Version, or, the, or bronze, and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. I name you son. I name you he who bestows care, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. He really wants us to get that, doesn't he? And before us, he really wanted Cyrus to get that. I've called you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. So Cyrus and his general Gobirus, who was later to become Darius the Mede or Darius the First, were a bit stuck now. They defeated the Babylonians in the open field, but how to get in to that city? A bit like the River Thames that flows and snakes through London, the River Euphrates flowed and snaked through ancient Babylon. That's why it had such an abundant water supply. And the Babylonians had thought of this already. Remember, it had been built in 2300 BC. An attacker could potentially get up the riverbanks and we'd be scuppered. So they built walls right through the length of where the River Euphrates skated and skirted its way through the city of Babylon and there were 25 gates to ensure that nobody could get up from the river into the city to take it ever. What Cyrus didn't yet know and what Gabirus didn't yet know but which presumably Belshazzar knew because how many of you know a fish rots from the head down the Babylonians were partying inside and nobody had shut those 25 gates on the night that this city was ultimately to fall. Just as God had said, the gates shall not be shut a hundred and something years earlier through Isaiah. So there's Cyrus, and we don't know, Herodotus and Xenophon don't tell us, we don't know whether somebody tipped him off about this, but somehow he thinks to himself, I know, we'll do what we did. To the Diala, after that silly sacred horse jumped in and drowned itself and I got all angry. How many of you know that women always go through the more nuanced emotions first? And if you ever see a woman angry, you're in bother. Whereas men, 
Don't bother with the nuanced emotions first. They go to anger first, and then they settle down and wonder what all the fuss was about. Cyrus was similar, because he was a good bloke, this Cyrus. He thought to himself, I know what we'll do. So he sent a big part of his host out of eyesight of Babylon, up into the hills, and they began to dig canals and trenches, just like they'd done at the Diala the previous spring. And there was a swamp land that these canals led to, and it became a great reservoir. And when the water level dropped under cover of darkness, so it was low enough for a fellow to wade through, knee deep, the troops that Cyrus had stationed down near the entrance place of where the Euphrates went under Babylon, and the exit place where it came out from Babylon, they marched into the city. Now if those gates had not been open because Babylon was partying, they wouldn't have got any further. And the Babylonian archers would have picked them off one man at a time. It would have been a slaughter. It would have been a travesty. It would have been ridiculous. But God had ordained that that is how Cyrus was going to get into this city. And to understand the rest of the story, read Daniel 5 verses 1 to 6 and beyond about Belshazzar's last night. In our reading this morning, we read from Isaiah 46, 3 to 13. Here's an interesting fact. Verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Cyrus came from modern-day Iran. Many Iranians today still regard him as their greatest ever ruler. No wonder when you look at the rulers they've got today. But his battle standard was, guess what? A bird of prey with two sets of wings outstretched, symbolising the fact that he was going to take all the known nations of the earth. And God says in this prophecy elsewhere, I will subdue nations before you. There were at least 15 nations that Cyrus, under his battle standard of the ravenous bird, brought into his empire. So when he got in, and killed Belshazzar. It needs to be acknowledged he was very kind to Nabonidus when Nabonidus got home because he was interested in his study of archaeology, you see. So he said, I've taken your kingdom from you, Nabonidus, but you weren't really that worried about that anyway. You were too busy looking at artefacts from the ancient world, weren't you? Tell me more about that. And he cared for him. And the other person who he regarded greatly the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian who was a great fan of the Romans, tells us, was Daniel. Daniel the prophet. And Josephus tells us that somebody, and it was probably Daniel, read Isaiah 44, 45, and 46 to Cyrus the Great. Think on that for a moment. You're still not quite sure why that horse plunged into that river and you lost a fighting season. You still feel a bit ashamed that you got so cross with the river, for goodness sake, that you decided you were going to dig all 360 canals to divert its flow and teach it a lesson. You're supposed to be the emperor of the greatest empire on earth, Cyrus. Why would you engage in petty behaviour like that? But when Daniel the prophet read Isaiah 44... 45 
and 46 to Cyrus he suddenly knew he suddenly knew that the God of Israel the omniscient God the Lord of heaven and earth had put him on the planet had raised him up in Iran at the time to the very day when he would be given the greatest city on earth Babylon to rule on page two of your notes if you're following on the notes there's a picture of a cylinder this cylinder is known as the Cyrus cylinder because it's Cyrus's words and proclamation that's written on it it's housed in the British Museum to this day it was found by a British archaeologist digging in Iraq in 1875 or 6 but there's a copy of it in the United a replica, an exact copy in the United Nations in New York and the United Nations calls this cylinder the Cyrus Cylinder the first ever charter of human rights because the words in the 40 lines on this cylinder and you can read them there if you want to follow the link uh, on that page if you can do such things it's well worth reading basically says I Cyrus recognise that the great God has called me by name to free the people of Jerusalem and to ensure that their temple is rebuilt and now I'm so into that it doesn't actually say that but that's my paraphrase modern day that I want to free and ensure the rights of all people in my empire. Because they're not mine. They belong to the living God. Now let's think about this for a moment. Daniel reads three chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah to this king, whom God calls his shepherd and his servant, who then realises... The Jews need to go home because God wants the temple built in Jerusalem. And that will bring freedom. Freedom of worship, freedom of government, freedom of conscience to all people in my empire. What's that a microcosm of? What's that a little picture of? It's a picture of the great shepherd. The true servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, Ilk. But on a human level, it's also a picture of what the word of God is meant to do in the human heart. It's meant to impart the character and nature of God to the human heart in such a way that the human heart is never, ever, ever the same. Look what he said page one not in the Cyrus cylinder not in the first ever charter of human rights but look at what Cyrus said success should always call for showing greater kindness generosity and justice only people lost in the darkness look at the biblical imagery here treat it as an occasion for greater greed What's the one and only place where Jesus says what his heart is like? I'll answer that question for you. It's Matthew 11, verse 28. I am meek and lowly in heart. Kindness. 
justice. Three chapters of God's word made Cyrus walk in his destiny, fulfill what God's word had said to him and of him. What about us? What about our Bible reading these days? What about the passages of Scripture? You'll probably read more than three, I hope you do, over the next week. How do you approach reading and listening to God's Word? We've heard today how Cyrus recognized the omniscience of God, the all-knowing nature of God, that God knew his thoughts inside and out. And said, Cyrus, here's my character. Here's my nature. And Cyrus went on to reflect the nature of Jesus himself the second person of the Trinity for the remaining nine years of his life on earth. He who bestows Cain. We couldn't finish today without looking at another passage that wonderfully, wonderfully illustrates the omniscience of God in relation to time. David ascended the throne of Israel in Hebron around 1000 BC. His kingdom was united in Jerusalem in 993 BC. Most scholars agree he wrote the words we're about to listen to in a moment. Sometime in that seven year period between 1000 BC and 9993 BC. And Psalm 22 opens famous words these. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verses 16 to 18, we get a remarkable, detailed, breathtaking description of crucifixion. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing... They cast lots. Crucifixion was not event invented, as far as we know, for another 480 years after those words were written. The people who read them at the time, the people who first wrote them down at the time, in faithfulness to God, would have thought, I wonder what that's about, piercing my hands and my feet. Because the first recorded incidents of crucifixion, funnily enough, happened in Babylon in the year 519 BC when Darius I, who had been the general Gabirus, crucified 300 opponents in Babylon. But our God knew how his son was to die. Our God planned it. Just like he planned Cyrus the Great's rise to power and benevolence as a ruler and the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. 
every single one of us here is known by God. He knows you. He knows your every thought. He knows who your mother and your father were and your grandparents. He knows who your great-grandparents were and your great-great-grandparents. And he knows every single thought and intention that ever passed through their hearts too. He knows every nation of the world that your ancestors and my ancestors came from. People still get mine wrong. They say, how long were you in Ireland for before you ever came to Australia? I've never set foot in Ireland. God knows that. Just like he knows I've made Philip with an odd accent. He knows us all right well. He knows our frailties. Just like he knew Cyrus's frailties when he lost it with the river. And he used Cyrus's frailties for his glory. So if you're allowing past frailties, past problems, past sins or even present problems... To get in the way of God calling you to walk in your God-given calling and vocation. Now's the time to stop. Now's the time to say, Lord, you know me. You know that I am dust. Well, fill this dust for your praise and glory. Because I know the grace and the mercy that flowed from Calvary when they nailed your son's hands and feet never stopped flowing. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we praise you for what we've looked at and talked about and thought of over the last two weeks. We praise you for what we've looked at today, Lord, albeit briefly, about the life of Cyrus the Great, whom you called your shepherd and your servant, and whose taking of Babylon you prophesied through Isaiah in such great detail. Thank you that you know us right well, Lord. Thank you that you know our past and our present and our future. Holy Spirit of God, take a hold of each and every one of us now and lead us forward, Lord, day by day, step by step, trusting you trusting in your character and nature that we might be, Lord Jesus, as calves led out from the stall, as the son of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.